Good evening, everybody, and welcome to our second in our summer series, our Wednesday night summer series. We're glad to see you here. And uh, just to uh, remind you that uh, we are meeting again next week, June 27th, to hear of God's faithfulness in ministering in our culture. Culture, We're going to have a couple representatives from some local pregnancy centers come here and share their work and and how God has proved themselves faithful in their work in our local area, so you don't want to miss that. Um, Last week, I mentioned that the series is being recorded and posted online, so if you missed last week, you can go on onto the church website and listen to what you missed last week. Tonight, we are going to have our, our speaker talk about planting a stone in shifting sands, the founding of Westminster during the t- turmoil of 1968. Now, who can remember where they were in 1968? Some of you can. I can't. I was told where I was in 1968. Uh, I came into existence in 1968, so I don't remember much about that year. But it's, uh, it's a good year to remember tonight as we celebrate our 50th anniversary this year as a church. Uh, so our speaker is Dr. Spanger. Daniel Spanger is a graduate from Nyack College uh, with a B.A. in history and uh, from Reformed Theological Seminary with a Master of Arts in Theology. In April of 2016, he successfully defended his dissertation at the University of Albany, SUNY. That's in New York for those who don't know. Um, he was taught at Nyack. Uh, he has taught at Nyack College, University of Albany, and is currently the chair of arts and sciences department and professor of history at my alma mater, Lancaster Bible College. He also serves the college as the director of the Aleutian Society. I think I said that wrong. Aleuquin? Alcuin? Yeah, there it is. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't learn to read at LBC. Um, a scholarly organization which serves campus faculty. Dr. Spanger has also published several essays for the New Encyclopedia of Christianity, a book for Byron Burger, and developed a book for Square Halo Books on the history of the Western Church. Dan is a pilot and has worked as a mechanic, a commercial fisherman, a grant administrator, and probably a dream job for some of you, a golf course greenskeeper. <laughs> He's married to Tara Spanger, and they have three daughters, Megan, Emily, and Caitlin. Would you join me in welcoming Dr. Daniel Spanger? Well, thank you, Mark. Some of those things were supposed to be private, uh, and you let the cat out of the bag. Um, I would like to be back on the golf course. I prefer mowing to missing the little white ball in front of me, so... Um, there's something very nice about sitting on a mower. When you're done, it looks beautiful. After you swing the golf ball, golf club, it does not look beautiful. So <laughs> I prefer the one over the other. Well, thank you. Um, I look forward to this opportunity to share with uh, you a little about 1968, uh, the year this church was founded. The lecture tonight is really going to focus on the historical events around uh, that year, not just 68, but I'm going to have to go back a little bit to get 68 in focus. Since 68 was not a year, it was really part of an era, and I want to deal with what that era was like and what was happening to try to make sense out of it. I want to give a brief disclosure here. I don't intend to handle all of 1968. Um, I do not know where I was at that time because I was not alive at that time, barely. Um, I also prefer to teach on things that are two to three hundred years old so no survivors can challenge my facts. However, (laughs) I'm sure 
I'm sure your experiences in 1968 are going to be slightly different um, than what I'm talking about, and hopefully leave some time at the end for some questions and maybe a chance to tie up some loose ends. Uh, before I get going, let me just pray over our time. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for Westminster and the, uh, the faithful uh, witness that has been um, here in Lancaster. Uh, we thank you for its leaders and its congregation. We thank you for the faithful ministry of the word. And we pray that you would bless it, uh, give its members, give its session, give its deacons, give its pastors wisdom as they manage the gospel in the tricky time. Uh, may they stay faithful to your word and to you, and may use them to great effect um, in the ministry here in this town and wherever you call its people. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Um, I f- am from, West, uh, from Wheatland Church um, and on session over there, so it's nice to be home to my my parent church, so I think I'll set up in the basement for a little while if you don't mind. I hear that's what kids do when they come home again, so I thought I might do that. Um, and I, it occurred to me as I was looking, I said, oh, that's right, it's ascending church. But then I checked your history, and I found out that you were first established at LBC prior to being founding here. Um, so uh, I went looking around for a metaphor to help me explain my own unique experience, and I found it in a 1947 song by Dwight Latham and Mo Jaffe, um, it was performed by Lonzo and Oscar in 1947. The title of the song is I Am My Own Grandpa. <laughs> so maybe you know the, know the song to which I refer. The line at the bottom, because now I have become the strangest case you ever saw. As husband of my grandmother, I am my own grandpa. I would put it this way. As professor at the sending institution of my mother church, I am my own grandpa. So it's nice to know that I am my own grandfather. Um, I would like to look tonight at uh, the 1968 era as a part of a, a string of things that were happening in this country. And there's lots of ways to analyze 68. Um, as I was going through it, I was overwhelmed by the size of the task. And I only have, what, six hours tonight? Isn't that right? So uh, that's not a lot of time to unpack all of this. So I, wa- I want to sort of pick up a theme, if I can, and then try to make it applicable to now. Since, in a sense, we're living in the shadow of 1968 even now, many of the crises that happened during that decade have in fact continued till now. And I know it's a worn out trope to talk about a culture war, but I think it's a useful one. Something about the way that American society dealt with the growing problems it was facing in 1965, 6, 7, 8, 9, 70, we've really not settled. And in fact, all we've done for the most part is settled into Right, a polarity where we've got one way of looking at things and another way of looking at things. And Christians, sadly, are stuck in the middle trying not to take either side in one sense, but also trying to be relevant to modern crises and social problems and racial issues without wanting to take one side or the other in the debates. However, I don't think uh, we can really look at this era without calling it what it is, and it is, in fact, a war. I was thinking, um, as I was looking at the era as an introduction to this, um, reading Thucydides, I don't know if you're familiar with Thucydides, he's the first archetypal historian, so he's my great, 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 great intellectual grandfather, however you'd like to say it. But he wrote, um, his famous work was on the, uh, the Peloponnesian Wars that destroyed the Greek islands um, um, when Sparta and Athens uh, finally went to war with one another. And he had this wonderful little statement about why they declared war on one another, and I thought it was helpful for what's going to happen in 68. He said this, the truest reason, though most concealed in word, I believe, to be that the Athenians became powerful, filled the Spartans with fear, and drove them to war. Filled the Spartans with fear and drove them to war. I think that's a pretty apt description of what happens really in American society and culture. As two sides 
of a then burgeoning war became very much afraid of the other one. And in that fear, they decided to arm up. They decided to get belligerent. They decided to get uh, tough in order to resist the other side. And what ends up happening then is a development of radicalization that happens in American history. And I'm going to talk about this term because I think this is very helpful in framing what happens in 1968. This process of abandoning the American way or the way that America had always done business. It was introduced by thinkers in the 1950s, but it was grabbed hold of by a revolutionary generation, the baby boomers who came along and saw for the first time that maybe the American way, the way we had always done business, was not, in fact, a good way to do things. And I want to talk tonight about how the 1968 era radicalized American culture, not just on the left, but on the right also, as America sort of embraced a radical approach to social and cultural problems. And I think we'll see how this develops. Let me just, in order to get this started, let me just talk about the American way. And I'm going to simplify. I realize this is not quite fair. But I think if you look across American history, you see some constants developing across the 17th, or 18th and 19th centuries. And I could say probably it's three things that defined American society and culture. It was um, an alliance with, or excuse me, a loyalty to property, Judeo-Christian morals, and labor. Now, I don't want to go into how I developed all this. Um, I teach 19th century American history, and this is a key theme of mine. But you see in American history this idea that what it means to be American, the kind of culture we develop, is trusting that private property, of course, develops people the best. People are hard workers. They produce the best. Um, they're self-disciplined, self-controlled. Um, they go make money, and that's fine. We see during the Great Depression very little concern about the wealth gap. You don't see that in the 1890s or the 1920s or the 1930s. Um, the idea is if you have property, you've earned it. We certainly don't like it to be abused in monopolies, but we don't mind the fact that people have property. In fact, that's part of the American system. Property trains you to be a good person. And then Judeo-Christian morals, of course, are the glue that holds American society together. So there's a general consensus about sexual morality, about marriage. Um, not that America is always a wonderfully moral place, but there's a consensus that it's the appropriate way to live. And if you live, if you listen to a lot of Billy Graham sermons from the 1940s and 50s, if you live with a good Judeo-Christian morals, everything else tends to work out. If you live well, if you obey the, the governor of the universe God, the governor of your society, if you, in fact, live morally, everything else works out. And then there, of course, is a trust in labor. And we see this being a major crisis in American history for uh, a good hundred years. Our responsibility is to work. We labor in order to improve ourselves. We don't like people that don't work. We don't like the super rich that ride around their yachts and, and don't do anything, and we don't like the super poor that, of course, also don't seem to do a whole lot. So we rely on this thing called labor, and we rely on that to develop society and to develop the economy. So this became the American way, and up until the 1950s was interestingly very well confirmed by two events, and I find this to be fascinating in American history. And this is not, by the way, the way it was in Europe. The Great Depression, oddly enough, confirmed this whole system for Americans. Now, in Europe, the Great Depression terrified people. Oh, you can't trust private property, you can't trust contracts, you've got to trust governments, and we went to socialism, or you've got to trust communism. But for some reason in America, the generation that would become the status quo generation of the 1960s 
confirmed this whole arrangement during the Great Depression. They did not yield to radicalism. They reconfirmed. There was a wonderful little survey done during the Depression of asking people why the Depression happened. And the majority of respondents said, it's my fault. I, I did this. Not the system, not, not the bureaucrats. No, I did this. I screwed up somewhere and I've got to fix this. There's an amazing responsibility that labor is going to get us out, and somehow a failure of labor has gotten us in. And of course, the other was two groups specifically that will play a key role in here. Uh, the first group, really, that was insulated from all this, of course, are Southern blacks. Um, Jim Crow laws um, kept blacks out of jobs, um, did not provide them votes. Um, there were many instances of blacks simply going to get on the voter rolls that would be shot by Southern police. Um, there were blacks that didn't have incomes, that were locked on farms. So they had no real access to all of this wonderment. And, of course, the problem was the volume on their problems was turned so low that the middle-class success never heard it until 1954. 1954, when Martin Luther King Jr. helped lead right the Montgomery bus strike, boycott, all of a sudden the volume from, whoa, there's a problem down here, what's going on? But there's also the problem of the urban black that was also, and probably for 1968, the more important group here. Urban blacks have been moving out of the South in large numbers after World War, II, after World War I. From 1916 to 1970, 6 million, of a total population of 19 million, 6 million blacks moved out of the South into the North. And where did they go? Cities, right? In the West and the Northeast, Detroit, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington. So, of course, as they move in, they don't move in with money, nor do they move in with skilled labor. So they move in in large, dense populations without any skill sets necessary to function in an industrial economy. The whites then in these cities, of course, now moving into the middle class, are part of a boom into the suburbs. We get this thing called white flight. As whites now vacate the center part of cities, and these inner cities now become population traps. People are stuck there in dense populations with not enough jobs in order to feed them or to develop. And so we get an insulated population here. And this problem is brand new. Americans hardly, I don't think from the records, you could tell me otherwise, saw this coming. But when riots started breaking out, first after World War I, 1919, the first real uh, riot, uh, black riot broke out uh, in Chicago. But then we see through the late 1960s, riots will break out frequently as urban populations are in fact trapped. Now there's, there's a, well let's, let's leave. These are two, we, we should also be talking about women um, it's a slightly different. Many women are in the middle class. Um, but women also don't have access to many of the jobs and opportunities here in the 1960s. Um, not all women thought that was a problem. I think by 1960, two-thirds of women thought that was not an issue at all. By 1970, that was down to about a third of women that thought that was not a problem any longer. And we'll see what feminism does with that. What's most interesting, I find, about 68 and what happens in those years is that this group, and we'll leave women slightly out of this, and we could talk about the white poor as well. Um, they don't become much, as much a focus um, in the late 60s. But these groups, in order for them to get into here, the argument was that what we need to do is to reform by simply allowing increased accessibility to the middle-class lifestyle for people that have been left out of it. Now, hear me, hear me carefully. There's a very important transition that happens between 1965 and 68, which will define the coming culture war. I talk quickly. I apologize. I'll slow down and say it again. 
The groups that were left out of all of this prosperity, the progressive mentality from the 1890s, 1920s, even through World War I, believed that this system was right. This is the right way to get it all done. What you need is to allow these people to get in is what you need. You need to open accessibility for all these things. It's very interesting. If you look at the um, National uh, Organization of Women, founded in 1966, for example, the, uh, the founding document says, we want as many opportunities as men have. What they're saying is, we want jobs. Uh, Betty Friedan, who was the leader of that organization, was pro-marriage, anti-abortion. Um, she wanted good morals, but she wanted women to have property. Martin Luther King, very famously in 1963, captures right, the reform mentality by saying what? You will judge us by the content of our characters, not the color of our skin. What does he mean? Let me in. Let me in. Give us jobs and we'll do it. We have the, op- we have the capabilities to actually succeed in the labor markets. Um, I don't want to get involved in discussions of his private life and whether J. Edgar Hoover was right or not, but in fact he did promote Judeo-Christian morals and families and society. Um, And, of course, he was pro-property. In fact, in many different strikes, uh, the most important one being the 1968 sanitation strike, Martin Luther King Jr. told told the marchers, don't break anything. Don't break it. If we break it, we're saying this doesn't work. We don't want you to break it. Let the system work, and we just want to be part of it. And you see this for uh, much of the civil rights movement, for example, uh, from 1954 with the Montgomery bus strike to the, to the um, strike in Birmingham in 1963 to the Selma March in 1965, uh, we find Martin Luther King Jr. agreeing that this works. And he captured this with a single word, hyphenated, nonviolence. Nonviolence. We don't fight you. We don't want to end the system. We don't want to end society. So there was still a belief into that period that somehow these groups that have been left out, and we can include white poor in here as well, that they would be reformed into this arrangement. That was probably the majority cultural view in America until somewhere in 1966 and 67. And then something else began to occur. A fringe movement became mainstream called the counterculture, uh, called the hippies or the yippies, um, call it the new left, um, whatever you want to call it, all of these groups had a similar theme about them. And what they believed was, this was corrupt now and evil. It could not be reformed. It could not be fixed. We don't want access to it. We want it to end. Goodness, happiness, and virtue can only come in entirely new society. This claim... Fringe stuff in the 1940s and 50s. Um, if you know some of, the, some of the key thinkers of what they call the beats or the beatniks in the 1950s, uh, Jack Kerouac and Norman Mailer and Alan Ginsberg, um, if you read some of their stuff, they were really on the fringe. They were sort of out there somewhere. Pot and homosexuals. We don't know what's going on down there in a the misty, hazy, who knows what. Um, starting to promote. It's, it's very interesting, too, that the drug, uh, the drug movement was actually a movement of breaking these three things. The reason that Timothy Leary was so um, popular for supporting LSD in the mid-60s is because it got your mind out of this. It was so embedded in us, we couldn't get it out. We had to go to drugs to free us from it. See, th- this is the radical movement that's starting to develop. So we see it as fringe through most of the 50s. 
Uh, in the beatniks, um, you're starting to see it in uh, some of the black power movements I'll talk about in a minute. Um, but this argument was really unpopular in America. So this was the key argument. 68 represents a shift away from let's keep it here and let's do things the way America does it to let's abandon the American model and do something entirely different. There are two triggers for that that I want to talk about that will occupy some of our story. The first trigger for that is a new group coming along, which we'll call the Generation Gap. And then I call the Generation Gap, but they're children of the Generation Gap. I don't want to look anybody in the eye right now, so I'm just going to say there are those people out there, part of this Generation Gap. They were, by 1960, a force to be reckoned with. By, by 1956, there were 13 million... 13 million teenagers. There are 19 million blacks in America by 1956. There are 13 million teenagers in 1956. If you add that to the 20-somethings who are part of this movement also, we've got somewhere around 20 million people. And they are frustrated with this for lots of reasons. Their parents, World War II, my, my, my classic metaphor for this is uh, Star Wars. Right? You've seen Star Wars, right? His dad goes off to war and becomes Darth Vader. Luke stays home, right? Now going to fight the darkness of his dad, right, for the good. This is, this is the insulated youth of the, of the Gen Gap culture. They see themselves left out of their dad's job. They don't really want it. They're bored by it. They don't like dad's morals. Um, one of the great examples of this is um, Rebel Without a Cause, 1955. Had a chance to see that, right? And what does the story show? This poor son whose dad doesn't really love him. His dad's not strong enough to stand up to his mom. Mom doesn't care about him. So this culture is not offering this generation gap anything. And this group feels like it's being alienated and left out. Uh, this was captured in 1967, uh, was re, um, reissued in 68 by a movie called The Graduate. I don't know if anybody's seen The Graduate. Right? Um, but in The Graduate, right, the main actor is always alienated from the adult culture around him. And there's this really amazing scene at the end where he's calling to the girl right in the middle of the wedding. Um, and he's outside the window banging on it. Here are all these moral, upright, you know, people, and where are they? They're on the inside, and where is he? In the outside, come on, you love me, you know, and she leaves, of course, all that to come with her, right? Another great example is Bonnie and Clyde, also 1960, I think 1968, um, where all of these things are somehow flat and ridiculous, and all the good people that keep all these things are like, I don't know, boring or flat characters or mean or selfish, Bonnie and Clyde somehow can break all these things, break property, the rules, they don't work, and somehow they're heroes, right? Even though they die in the end. All right, you get my point. This generation is becoming alienated from this group, and they're starting to look for something different. What I think 68 represents is this new generation joining with a group, of course, of civil rights uh, proponents who all end up now moving into the radical sphere. Rather than accepting... Let's fix America by going to work. Uh, let's fix America by getting married. And, and let's, let's try monogamy, and let's try working hard, and we're going to get America fixed that way, came to blame that entire system for everything that had gone wrong. And that, re- that represents a massive shift in American culture and ends up setting now the second, I think, pole in the culture war, those that still consider the American way right and those now that consider the American way corrupt to its core. Racist. Uh, bigoted, genderist, all of those things. All of this is developing uh, in the late 1960s. Does that make sense? All right, I'm interested in, I'm interested in that transition. Again, I'm, 
I'm supposed to be on 68, and I'm still not even to 68, so bear with me. Has the clock stopped? No, we're okay. Um, <laughs> I want to I now see from 63 and 64 how this process goes from fringe, as these groups were really always fringe and insulated, how they end up shifting into the mainstream by 1966 and 7. And what is most compelling is that this group, which I think probably, if the historians are right, till 1967 was waffling in here somewhere, something about that year drove this group very strongly into the radical wing. Now, I don't mean all youth historians are careful to say that. Many youth stayed at home, did, had, went, you know, got jobs, got married, did the normal thing. But there was a, a critical mass of this new generation that decided the only solution to America was to destroy all of these things so we could build something new. There's a very interesting essay in 1957. Um, it was written by Norman Mailer, and it was called The White Negro. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating little essay. Um, and what, he, what he claims in The White Negro is that white youth have become totally, this is 57 now, totally disaffected by the boringness, quite frankly, of all of this. And parents that claim to be morally right, and yet they don't have any relationships with their kids. What, and what he says is, the white kids have found the true survivor in the black urban male. The black urban male, the black has no security. He, he can't think about the future. He's not going to go to university. He's got to live day by day. And the only thing he's got is his body and whatever he can do with that. And Norman Mailer sort of makes this clarion call to this new generation to find a new identity, an identity in something else. And we'll see how the genera- this new generation is then going to start shifting into there, sort of on the back of Norman Mailer's call. Uh, there's, there's other things, of course, also building in the background, fringe at this point, but um, starting to make waves. For example, um, Kinsey's reports, um, Alfred Kinsey, I don't know if you're familiar with Kinsey's reports in 1948 and 53, uh, that said this is all a sham. Your parents say don't have sex, but they're having sex with the mailman. This is, this is the sort of argument out of Kinsey. Most of the data he used was a, um, was a fraud, but nonetheless, um, it had a tremendous impact uh, on the society and culture of that time. There were also some black radicals that were starting to make noise. For example, Malcolm X, Marcus Garvey, if you're Marcus Garvey from the mid-20s and 30s. But Malcolm X, probably the most uh, volatile of the radicals, right? Saying that this whole thing is corrupt because it's white. Um, We need to end all of this. He famously said, we can try ballots, but after that I'd start using bullets. And what does he mean by that? He means this thing needs to be destroyed so that we can build something fresh and new. Um, the whole sexual revolution, um, Playboy starts in 1954. Um, the Supreme Court finally allows uh, for obscenity to be used in the mails. That starts, uh, that's a court case in 1959. Um, the USDA re- uh, releases the, uh, the pill in 1957, not for purchase till 1960. But all of these things are starting to challenge, one way or another, these key components of the American framework. So there's a lot out there. There's arguments being made. There's a push, but we don't find this group of middle-class young people joining into there until a little bit later. So what was it that kicked them over? I think we could say a lot of things, but primarily there was one event that had the most impact in pushing this group into the radical phase, and of course that was Vietnam. Vietnam had the power to convert this middle-class group, taking advantage of this system, 
because that's where their parents had gotten the money to pay for their college educations, in order to take all of that and start shifting into um, this new way of doing things or this new way of thinking. Um, sorry, my phone is not responding to me. I apologize. So what happens then, and we'll look at Vietnam and some of these issues, what happens that drags this generation to here, and what is it that really, for many blacks, um, they grow very tired of this, this reform model and want to do something new? Let's look, at, let's look at the issues and events that are going to lead up to that. I'm going to give myself some space to work here. And again, it's hard to compile all of these things because there's so many events that really do happen. I'm going to try to just give you some of the key events that happen and give us a sense of it. Um, but of course, the race issue, um, as Norman Mailer pointed out, and uh, Mark Little um, and um, Rohrbach, there, there's several historians that all claim very clearly that the race issue was probably one of the most important issues that will push this generation to think differently. There were some events and things starting to happen by the 1960s that were starting to say or show that the reform model was no longer working. At first, these happened in the South. There were several instances. Um, the way that Bull Connor, for example, six dogs uh, and fire hoses on children in Birmingham in 1963, that was a major blow to the argument that America was fixable. People that watched those events couldn't believe uh, that somehow America was fixable. In 1963, also in June, Medgar Evers was shot by a council of whites um, in Mississippi. Medgar Evers stormed Normandy as an American soldier, uh, risked his life for this country, only to come back, push for voter registration, and then get shot, leaving a widow and two children behind. Uh, in, in that year, also in September of 1963, the KKK bombed a black Baptist church in Birmingham, Birmingham, killing four little girls. You might start to argue that somehow things are not fixable. Probably the year that matters most, and historians and, um, and civil rights leaders all point to this, was a march led by James Meredith in 1966. He was going from Memphis um, uh, down to... Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, it was a single-man march. He was going to go all alone. And it was for voting registration. Voting registration is an argument for reform. The argument is, if you let blacks vote, right, then this system will start to feel the effect of their votes. The more blacks vote, then we'll start getting jobs and we'll start getting positions. And so he takes off from, uh, from Memphis. Two days into the march, a white man walks up with a 16-gauge shotgun and shoots him at point-blank range three times. Meredith survived it. Was wounded pretty badly, but survived. Drew national attention. People raced to it. Martin Luther King Jr. will join, um, join the, the march that will now continue, as well as the leader of the um, Southern Nonviolence, the Student Nonviolence Coordinating Committee, the SNCC, a man by the name of Stokely Carmichael. If you remember Stokely Carmichael, you know where this is going to go. Um, the march started out when Carmichael got there as an argument between the two as to whether this is going to be violent or nonviolent. Carmichael wanted all whites out. I don't want any whites around here. This is about white rape of black culture and black society. He was, he was picking up a lot of Malcolm X um, and Marcus Garvey. Um, he delivers a speech in 1966 at Berkeley in which he uses for the first time his phrase, black power. And when he develops a pro-voting registration um, group, he uses the panther as its symbol, and this begins this connection between the panther 
and of course the, um, the black power movement. In that speech that he delivers in 1966, he's very overt. American white society is a cancer on humanity. It needs to be done away with. It is racist to its core. This is not about civil rights, he says. This is about white supremacy. This is not about fixing a system that can't be fixed. A Carmichael captures now, for the first time, I think, for the, uh, for the civil rights movement, um, a cultural, what becomes now culturally mainstream voice on what black power will mean. Martin Luther King Jr., of course, disagrees with Carmichael. They have fights. It's very interesting that when they finally get to Jackson, and it ends very peacefully, um, it ended, that um, uh, MLK is handing around American flags. He's giving American flags to all the protesters, right? You're an American, and he's saying, freedom now. Stokely Carmichael is saying, black power now. Entirely different argument for the same problem. Carmichael has moved very clearly into the radical phase here and is bringing the SNCC along with him. Later that year, um, 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 Huey Newton and Bobby Seale uh, will develop an armed group in California uh, to protect blacks from white cops. Uh, They'll be known as the Black Panther Party. Um, and they will use violence where necessary. At one point, even storming Sacramento, they go into the government building with guns. <laughs> Storm the actual... Someone said, 68 can't be worse than it was now. I go, oh, you don't know. <laughs> we don't have people with guns storming, you know, uh, governmental assemblies here. But he was convinced that it was going to take a war in order to fix the American system. Um, to confirm so much of what Stokely Carmichael was saying, urban blacks facing um, difficult economic times, choked off resources, insulation, ended up rioting in 1967, at least in 150 different cities, but the ones that we really know about are Newark and Detroit as the most popular. Devastating riots, riots that typically start with heavy-handed police action against a, a fairly, you know, a criminal of low stature, I think in I think in Detroit it was um, someone driving without a license, and it turned into a scuffle, and then uh, people came out, and sooner or later you get the National Guard involved. And over four days, you've got better than $12 million damage and 20 people killed uh, on the streets of Newark. Um, the urban blacks were frustrated with what was happening. Same thing will happen in Detroit. Um, in Detroit, there's also a revolt, a riot breaks out. Uh, millions of dollars of damage, hundreds of fires break out across the city, and heavy-handed police bring peace to uh, the city again. So in 66 and 67, we're starting to see now uh, a shift away from a trust in the reform model to fix American society and off to something more radical. Let me ask you just a question real quick, because it's an important part of the story. What does mainstream America think about all that stuff? I haven't heard much about them in this story thus far. Where are they on all of this? Are they seeing the devastation and hopelessness of urban black communities that have no money, drug problems, unemployment? Are they paying attention at all? There's a very interesting thing happened in 67 after the Detroit, uh, after the, um, after the Newark riot, um, President Johnson called the commission, the Kerner Commission. And this is interesting. What did he ask the Kerner Commission to find? I want you to go find the communists. Isn't that interesting? I want you to go find the communists. You see, this system works so well that we can't believe these people are actually against it. Right? I mean, just get a job. I mean, realize you're poor. Get some training. Stay married. 
get a job, this should all work out. Johnson, his administration, I think true of the middle class uh, American mainstream at this day, could not understand what all the fuss was about. And so he sent the Kerner Commission out to prove that this was all a bunch of malarkey. Really, this was communists that were unsettling. H-U-A-C and McCarthyism. Communists are behind all of this instability. They're ruining everything. There was a disbelief that somehow the American system was not working. The Kerner Commission came back. It was a really interesting little dialogue between the head of the Kerner Commission and Johnson when they met afterwards. And the guy says, well, I can tell you what it is. It's hopelessness. People are locked in poverty, and it's hopeless. And he said, where were the communists? (laughs) Well, they're not there. He goes, well, certainly they're inspiring it somehow. (laughs) There's got to be communists there doing this somehow. Johnson could not believe that the Kerner Commission couldn't find a single communist driving the Detroit and Newark riots. Well, and this is exactly what one of the key responses, right, from the white society and white community was J. Edgar Hoover. Um, J. Edgar Hoover um, had used the FBI against the KKK in the 1950s. Um, By the early 60s, of course, he was now using that against black national movements. Um, And he was able to use, um, it was called the the Co-Intel Pro, uh, developed in the late 1950s, where he would wiretap and, of course, try to find information on any leaders of black nationalist organizations or Martin Luther King Jr. uh, for, in fact, joining with the communists. Now, there's, I don't want to get into him being communist because I don't think that's the case. However, however, there's very interestingly, by 67, King has shifted out of. Now, okay, let me, let me do, before I go there, sorry, this is the problem. There's so many things going on in 68, it's hard, 67, it's hard to get it all straight. I, two things I want to say here. One is that white, middle-class, mainstream America could not believe that it was as bad as these people were saying it was. It had to be the communists. It, it had to be some dastardly push by Khrushchev, right, to undermine American society. And so um, what you see, and this is um, Senator Ellis will, will um, in 67, will produce a report in which he says the communists were behind it all. The argument, of course, is that uh, all radical things and all radical approaches are inspired by the, the commies in Russia. And unfortunately, what that does for mainstream is they don't take an honest appraisal of the actual impact, right, that the economy was having on these insulated populations. And instead, every time something went wrong, of course, they dragged up Cold War tropes about, well, the communists are really behind all this. Let me say here, there's there's a moment in the history where you can almost say, if you could have looked at the actual pain and suffering of the African-American communities in Detroit and Newark and Chicago and grappled with that, rather than blaming it on the communists, maybe we could have salvaged some of this reform effort and dealt with it a little differently. As one historian says, history hides her contingencies well, so we don't know how it would have gone otherwise. But you can see, and, and, and we'll see this even in the election in 1968 uh, in the Democratic National Convention, Um, that there was very little acceptance of the kind of problems that these communities were facing down here. Now, on the flip side of that, very quickly, in 66 and 67, the youth movements, along with the radical black movements, couldn't see anything good happening up here. They they couldn't admit that Judeo-Christian morals were useful. Um, You know, Herbert Marcuse, the great theorist of the of the 1950s and 60s, right? We have to reject all the sexual mores and all the labor mores. Reject it all. Um, in order to, in fact, embrace the freedom that humanity is really supposed to have. Marcuse wanted sort of a primal drive of humanity and sexual urges uh, to take over. 
And this side down here saw nothing at all useful about this group up here. And this, to me, is the great crisis of 68 in that you actually divide American society where each side has no trust or faith in the other side. You can't find any shared commitment between them. And in fact, almost assume that anybody down here is out for, for blood. In fact, when in 67, when the students will march on the Pentagon, for example, um, they will support Ho Chi Minh and the northern Vietnamese. And, and, and Americans are like, how could you, do you want the North Vietnamese to kill our boys? You have no claim here. You're just an evil, rotten communist pro-Ho Chi Minh. And of course, this side sees uh, napalm and the cost after the Tet Offensive to the poor Vietnamese and go, and the My Lai Massacre, right, that happens in March of 68, um, you don't even care. You'll, you'll gun down women and children. Well, how about Ho Chi Minh was a murderous person, to use a clean word, right? Killed hundreds of thousands of his own people in order to stay in power. Can you guys admit that Ho Chi Minh was that bad? Um, in 1967, Martin Luther King Jr. will deliver a speech in New York City. It's a very important speech because Martin Luther King Jr. now shifts out of his support for this into a more radical, still nonviolent, but radical phase. And he says, America is to blame. America is to blame. We need to leave this to Ho Chi Minh and his people. I wish Martin Luther King Jr. would have read the history of Ho Chi Minh's rise to power. You would not trust that man with a country. I mean, he's a murderous savage. But somehow America, as he says, if only America will change its ways, the world would be better. This is the whole problem um, that King is now starting to see. So this radicalization where both sides are starting to reject the other. Um, and not see any good in it. By 1967, of course, the youth population, um, the hippies as we call them, was quickly shifting into that mode also. Um, and there are lots of examples of how this was happening and what was going on at the time. Um, it probably, as the story is noted, started in the summer of 1967 in the Haight-Asbury district of, of California uh, with the Monterey International uh, Pop Festival uh, where the Grateful Dead <laughs> unleashed on America, <laughs> American culture. Uh, the, the, uh, the drug haze of modern rock and roll, um, which captured for so many of these disaffected youth that the only way to really fix the world was, as Timothy Leary said, to tune in, turn on, and drop out. You probably have heard that phrase before. So the youth culture now was starting to shift out as they were starting to become sort of enamored with this new sex, drugs, and rock and roll culture, breaking away from the parents to be something new to start a new society and a new community. Probably the event that will play the largest role in that transition is the Tet Offensive in the Vietnam War, which happens in January of 1968. And 1968, I really think, is probably the most important transition as people are leaving out of here this new group, the rise of the, of the uh, black power movement and this new generation gap sliding into Timothy Leary's drug-induced haze uh, as part of the hippies. Tet Offensive, of course, was an unmitigated disaster for the North Vietnamese, um, if you know anything about that battle. Um, it was an, a, a terrible loss. 40,000-plus Vietnamese uh, were killed in the fighting. Americans won every part of that fight from top to bottom. The real devastating part to the Tet Offensive, however, was that in the fall of 1967, American government said, we are winning the war. We're winning the war. It's almost over. Um, very famously, General, Westmore, or General um, Westmoreland will come back from Vietnam in November 67 and say, the war is going to be tied up very soon here. 
It's going to be over. We've won. We're just, we're just putting a bow on it. This will all be over. And, of course, news camera crews in January of 68 saw that that was all a terrible lie. What Tet showed was this was hypocrisy. This was lie. This was imperialism. Uh, this is manipulation. Uh, Johnson is not giving a true story to what's going on. The hawks in American culture and society still supporting Vietnam. And meanwhile, we can see the death and destruction brought on by the Tet Offensive. So the Vietnam protest will drive so many of this new generation now into this radical phase. The war protest movement, this free speech movement, Students for a Democratic Society. There's multiple of these organizations, MOB, MOB as it was called, the National Mobilization Against the Vietnam War. All of these efforts as the youth are now going to be pouring into uh, this anti-war effort. Um, this will probably be captured, this shift will be best captured by the rise of Eugene McCarthy. And I, I think partly here I'm talking to people that know these things, so I feel like I'm flying through them. If you were college students, I'd have to do this at about third the speed, but I think you know some of these things and have heard them. Uh, but the, the resistance to Vietnam was captured by Eugene McCarthy uh, in the primaries of 1968. Um, get clean for Gene, <laughs> the slogan. Um, it's time for the teens to wake up and join Gene McCarthy in their fight against Lyndon Johnson. Um, the, the riots at the Pentagon in 1967, but probably the, 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 the biggest event that drew so much attention was the, um, the Democratic National Convention in 1968, um, where the, uh, the youth movement right, made its splash on the world scene, standing up against the Democrats who are now going to be pro-Johnson and pro-war. And so this became a, a rallying cry um, as now we see the student movements and the rise of the Yippies and other resistance groups. Um, it, it was also captured well by the Columbia riots in 1968 when Mark Rudd will take over Columbia University right, and shut it down because it's pro-war, because the university is making weapons for the military. So we're seeing this radicalization of students um, as they're now standing up against the Vietnam War and they've caught a cause now that they can identify with. It's with the heat of all of this that two things will happen um, that will trigger a landslide in American culture. The first one, of course, is the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. will be assassinated on April 4th, 1968. When he's assassinated, um, Stokely Carmichael famously says, white America, you killed Martin Luther King Jr. Not, not him, you killed him. And the day you killed him, you declared war on us. And the only way that now we can finally fix these problems is by wiping you out. The death, uh, as one historian said, when Martin Luther King Jr. died, the nonviolence movie died with him. Movement died with him. It was over. The idea of reform, the idea of fixing the system is done now. All we can do now is revolt and destroy the system and build a new one. The second event, of course, is the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. That'll happen in June, on June 6th of 1968. Now, there's reasons why I don't want to get into it and run out of time, but Bobby Kennedy was something of a pro-reformer. He was big on labor, and, and he didn't like welfare, and, and he, he, wanted, um, you know, he wanted tax cuts, uh, and he wanted to continue fighting the war to help the South Vietnamese, and yet he spoke about race issues. He visited ghettos. He stood on his car right, in, in black ghettos and said, racism is wrong. I, I want more jobs. 
And in a sense, he was a crossover figure. And once MLK was dead, he was the one guy, in a sense, sort of holding these two together. And then in June, Sirhan Sirhan kills him, and that's the end of that. Those two assassinations, probably more than just about anything, drive a stake in the heart of these liberal reform movements that were also pro-American. Of course, after Martin Luther King's uh, assassination, riots will break out in uh, more than 100 cities, um, Chicago, Washington, Baltimore, um, all of them destructive. <laughs> uh, probably the one in Chicago is the one we remember the most with Mayor Daley and his heavy-handed tactics. Um, if you see anybody with a match, shoot him, was Mayor Daley's response to these things. And, and the student youth, of course, that are watching all of this happen are becoming disenchanted with what this group is doing. Uh, it's captured best probably by the Olympics in, in October of, of 1968 when two black athletes uh, in the 200-meter dash win medals, and rather than salute the flag, black power fist, right, right in the face of America. We're not here for America. We're here for something different. Uh, you can see it also as it started to develop into radical feminist movements. Um, Mary Daly and her theology, or Gloria Steinem, that the only way for women to finally live is to get rid of all of this. We've got to get rid of marriage, and we've got to get rid of uh, restrictions on abortion, and we've got to get rid of all those limitations. We need a new world and a new way of living. Um, and, of course, the, the Black Panther movement, which by 1968-69 was in uh, some 12 different cities with over 2,000 members right, that were protecting communities against the white pig. At the very same time, America, of course, decides to back Richard Nixon in the election of 1968 confirm the Cold War, confirm American values against these communists. And he'd go on to win in 1972 as well, confirming what it meant to be American. While, in fact, now this new group starting to come along, we'll call the new left, if you bundled it all up, um, is now starting to resist all of these things. And the only way to fix America is to destroy society as we have it. This will play out in the 69 um, and 70 with the Pentagon Papers and Watergate and it, it, any number of events now that will reconfirm for people on both sides that the other side is absolutely, unredeemably corrupt. Until what we find ourselves in is a ruin of a, of a culture war that has been raging now for better than 40 years, 50 years. Uh, there's, there's lots of other things to say. Um, again, I'm sorry, there's so, many, there's so many events trying to pull in here to make sense out of. But I really, for all that happens in 1968, to understand that this is the major crisis and then to ask this question, so where does the church go? And, and to me, that question about where does the church go then, and, and there's all sorts of innovative things happening here, the Jesus movement and the Jesus freaks, and there's all kinds of really innovative things happening. You know, can we reject property but still have Judeo-Christian morals, you know? Um, there's a resurgence of sort of middle-class Christianity uh, with, with, um, uh, with Billy Graham and his revival movement. So the church is trying to find a way, but, but let me ask you, because I think in many ways we're in the same place. Where does the church go in this culture war? Do we, do we see the claims down here and say, there's no reason for that? There's no reason for it. I don't care if your unemployment rate is double digits. I don't care if you've got 50% poverty rates in inner-city black communities. It's not my problem. You get a job and buck up. Or, or can, you, can we look past the violence and the, and the demands that are oftentimes being made for the actual pain that's being suffered? The Kerner Report is very clear. It's hopelessness. That's, the church does that really well. 
I mean, we can address hopelessness of any shape or size, socioeconomic, racial, cultural, whatever the hopelessness, Christ brings hope. At the same time, for, for modern Christians who are now starting to leave orthodoxy behind because they see only social problems, um, there's a danger, obviously, here in rejecting those sorts of morals, those tried-and-true doctrines and truths, even the social ones, like work matters. What have social statisticians, uh, statisticians showed us? If you get married and have kids after marriage and stay married, your chances of being out of poverty are like 90%. So to see the social problems and focus on them doesn't mean we abandon those truths which we know, those religious truths, social truths, moral truths. And, and, and I guess from, from studying this a little bit is to see some of the same crises then that we're facing now and asking how does the church maintain its doctrines and its truths while understanding the other side, to at least understand the pain and the suffering that drives some of these things, and can't we address them? I don't want to do 1968 all over again. I don't think, for the most part, it worked all that well, at least looking at culture now. Anyway, it's hard to summarize a year like 68 in 55 minutes or so, but uh, that's about all I got. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I... That's a great question, and it's, a, again, another complicated story. World Council of Churches, um, yeah, very powerful from the 1917, 1918, up through um, you know, early, ni- early 1970s, 80s. Um, they, of course, wanted to believe that somehow we could have it without that. In the American system, we can have Judeo-Christian morals, but then you have other theological issues here, right? They're denying key factors of the, of the Christian faith. In my paradigm, I, I can't include all that complexity, but Judeo-Christian morals generally, and they're a little weak on labor, they're trying to have all of this. Um, the, the, the orthodox response to that was either to go fundamentalist, or you equate all of this with the gospel. Americans, we have to be careful of that one. <laughs> Somehow this is the gospel, and we saw that breaking out um, in the turn of the century fundamentalism. Or evangelicals that were trying to be far more savvy about this. Um, and, I, and I think that movement, which begins in the mid-40s, um, um, can't think of his name, founder of Fuller Seminary, Carl Henry, um, and um, Harold Ockengay and uh, Billy Graham, all of them, trying to say, actually, you don't, it's not this. The gospel's something different. The gospel agrees with all of this, but the gospel's something different. And the evangelical movement tries to wedge itself between what, you know, Niebuhr, the, the liberals, and the World Council of Churches was doing and the fundamentalists were doing, and trying to say, wait a minute, we can have savvy answers to serious social problems without abandoning the gospel on the one hand or social order on the other. Um, And I think they very effectively sort of wove that. Now, in doing so, they ticked off both the liberals and the fundamentalists, so evangelicals have always been at war, it seems. um, And then uh, there's another interesting group, too, that tried to abandon this altogether, this stuff. Uh, The Christian communes in California, the Jesus movement, um, the Jesus army in England. (laughs) Remember all these groups? Uh, They they actually thought geo-Christianity doesn't care about the rest of society at all. All it cares about, just believe in Jesus, man. I throw a man in there because it's used in the day, I think. But, um, which, which, in a sense, is trying to embrace a radical view of this. 
Um, which, you know, anyway, has its own has its own theological issues, I think. Interesting to uh, to listen to this evening and and to kind of see how things all kind of developed over the over the time. And uh, you know, our theme is celebrating God's faithfulness. And you might think, well, where is that in all of this? Well, uh, God remains faithful despite the mess of history that man has attempted to uh, to straighten out on its own. God's faithfulness remains, and in the midst of all this turmoil, all this mess, Westminster Presbyterian Church became established, remains to this day, um, and hopefully is, is, is speaking into the culture as we, as we seek to direct people to the one who can give hope, as we seek to point people not to a government program, not to a radical uh, attempt to uh, to avoid government programs, but to the one who created us and designed us and knows exactly what works and provides hope and provides stability. And that's what Westminster does here. We, we try to challenge people to live faithful to our faithful God and, and to the teaching of his word. So thank you, Daniel, for coming and sharing tonight. Um, Certainly helps give us perspective of, of what we were birthed into uh, during that time period. So we appreciate that. Uh, again, a reminder, next week, uh, come back, listen to uh, two, two guests from local pregnancy centers. Um, and uh, you, won't be, you won't be disappointed in what you hear from them either. Uh, you know, they're on the front lines helping people who are desperate, who feel hopeless. And you will be blown away. If you come in here, you'll be blown away at some of the testimonies that they share of how God just grips these people's hearts and and helps them see the value of life. I hope you come. Uh, I hope you don't disappoint our Sanctity of Life committee. Uh, come and listen to these people. Come listen to how God has been faithful as these two organizations minister in our culture to address one of the greatest hopelessnesses that people can face. And, and let's close in prayer as we depart. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we could reflect back on, on the era uh, of, of when our church began and it just um, recognizing some of the tragic uh, shifts and, and mentalities that, uh, that have led us to this point and, and even today remain. And I pray that you would help us as we live in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces Help us to reflect Christ accurately, not as part of a a a, uh, a philosophy or a program, but help us to truly reflect Christ to our neighbors, to our workers, our co-workers, to our families, so that they may see where real hope comes from and where real stability comes from. We thank you for our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.